Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, as you're turning, just to catch you up, as we've been studying Hebrews for a while now, please recall that it is written to Christian converts from Judaism in the first century who were being persecuted for their faith and were being tempted to leave their faithfulness to Jesus Christ and go back to their previous life in order to escape the persecution they were enduring for the name of Christ. And the author of Hebrews from beginning to end has been saying, don't do it. Jesus is greater than anything you can run to, anything you can hope in, anything you can look to. And as we've reached here, chapter 8, having just talked about Jesus as a high priest like Melchizedek, which I know you've all been waiting for a high priest like Melchizedek. And if you haven't been, go listen to last week's sermon because I'm not joking. Having recognized that we have such a great high priest, the author of Hebrews goes on to describe the covenant, the new covenant of which this priest is a minister. So this morning, hear now the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter one, verses, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with it when he says, and here he quotes Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old, is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Whether it's an upgrade to your operating system that ends up shutting the whole thing down, or a new model car that doesn't outlast your older one, we've all experienced in some way that newer isn't always better, right? But God promises his people a new covenant. He's quoting here in, in Hebrews 8, the prophet Jeremiah. 
The prophet Jeremiah, who inspired by the Spirit of God, spoke of a new covenant. A covenant is a promise that God makes about how he's going to act, how he's going to deal with his people. The first covenant here includes the law, the priests, the sacrifices. So what would the new covenant be about? And here's the question. You know, if you've got a movie, and then there's a, another movie in that same series, you ask, well, is it a sequel that picks up where the old one left off and continues the story? Or is it a reboot? Was the first one so bad and so wretched that they had to go back to the beginning and make the movie all over again using similar material? So this new covenant, how does it relate to the old covenant? Is it a sequel? that just kind of picks up where the other one left off and carries the story on further? Or, or is it a reboot that just starts the whole thing over because the old one didn't work? Or is it something else altogether? I'm going to answer that at the end of the sermon, so hang tight. The author of Hebrews is writing to people who were born and raised under the, the old covenant of the Old Testament, and he's making the case that the new covenant, which is through Jesus Christ, is better than what came before. In verse 6, he says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. It's better, he goes on to say, because it accomplishes what the old covenant did not accomplish. You know, we say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But there was something that the, new co the old covenant was not accomplishing and so the Lord instituted a new one. Verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. We'll talk in a few minutes about what was the fault of the first covenant that the Lord himself established. Was there something wrong with what God made? The problem was that it was incomplete. It was good for what it was, but it was only ever meant to be a shadow, a copy of the truth we see in verse 5. The priests on earth serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, and that word also means tabernacle, it's talking about the, the place of worship that God designed in, in the Old Testament. When Moses was about to put that up, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. God gave Moses a, a vision, a, a design, a pattern of what the heavenly reality looked like. And that's what was created in the, ta the earthly tabernacle and later on the temple, which was based on it. God used these things, these shadows, these copies, used them to teach his people about the reality that they represented, the real salvation that would one day take place through Jesus. The author of Hebrews looks at Jeremiah's words, the words of the prophet Jeremiah speaking of a new covenant, and seeing those words, reading those words through the story of Christ, he shares the better promises that God gives to his people only through Jesus. And the first one I want us to look at is that in the new covenant we have a better forgiveness from God. We have a better forgiveness from God. In Hebrews uh, 8.12, says, I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He uses language that has fallen out of common use in our culture, hasn't it? I mean, when's the last time somebody asked, hey, how are you doing? Well, I'm just thinking about my iniquities. Oh, 
man, my iniquities are on my mind. No, we don't use that language anymore, but I would suggest that the idea of it still lingers. We all, all, I don't just mean church people, I don't just mean religious people, I mean everyone you know senses their guilt. They're aware that something is wrong in them. And the way we deal with that, I think we deal with it in a lot of ways. One of the ways is we distract. We, we try to do things to get our mind off of it so that we're not thinking about the sense of something being wrong with us. Or, or we try to deny it. You know, it's not that bad. You know, what, I, what, I, what I did really wasn't that wrong. You know, I'm not as bad as those people. And so I'm really not that bad. So we distract or we deny or we try to, to buy our way out of it. We, we try to do more good things to make up for the bad things that we know are bugging our conscience. Or, or we think that if we just suffer enough, I deserve what I get. I deserve this bad relationship because of some things I did. Or I deserve this bad situation because of what I've done. We think we're buying our way out of guilt. Well, one reason that God gave the priests and the temple of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, was to teach his people that the only solution for our guilt and for our sin is not to deny it, not to distract from it, not to buy our way out of it. The only solution for our sin is sacrifice. In Leviticus 17, the Lord says that the life of the flesh is in the blood And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Atonement is the making right of our guilt and our sin. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now this is not an arbitrary requirement from a bloodthirsty God. The consequences of rebelling against God, and that's what sin is. It's removing God as your king and putting yourself in his place. And any rebel to a king must die. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. What sin earns for you is death. So in order for divine justice to be satisfied, the soul that sins must die. And the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament demonstrate that principle because of the sins of God's people. Because of the sins of God's people, there must be a life taken. But let me state the obvious. When an animal, a goat, a bull, a dove, whatever, when an animal is sacrificed, it's not the sinner who's bleeding and dying. It's an animal. What good is that? Well, verse 3 says, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priests to have something to offer. These sacrifices don't take away sin. The author of Hebrews will explain that a few chapters later. We're going to see next month in Hebrews 10. These sacrifices were a reminder of sins every year. But it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And yet, God had promised to forgive his people on account of them. Why is that? Why does the blood of a sacrifice lead to forgiveness? Well, it's not because of the sacrifice itself. It's because of what the sacrifice points to. Just as we saw in baptism, the water doesn't wash away sins. What the water points to is the work of the Holy Spirit in making us clean. So the sacrifice itself 
The animal didn't, didn't do anything to lead to forgiveness. It only worked because it pointed to something bigger. This has always been the way. That sacrifices were always a shadow of a reality yet to come. A shadow that taught the people that God would use the blood of an innocent sacrifice to forgive you. He'd done that from the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned. The Lord had said, the day you eat of this fruit that I've commanded you not to eat, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Did Adam and Eve die that day? In a sense, their spirits were separated from God. We could say they died, but they went on living. But there was a death that day because to cover their shame and their nakedness, the Lord took the life of an animal and accepted a sacrifice on their behalf. Every sacrifice only works because it points to Jesus as the perfect sinless sacrifice. And so the forgiveness that he brings is better than the forgiveness that came before because it's not a shadow, it's not a copy, it's not a pointer, it's not a teaser, it's the reality of forgiveness. His sacrifice is not offered in an earthly tabernacle, but in the presence of God. And it's better because it clearly communicates the grace and the mercy that are the source of our forgiveness. One of the problems with the sacrifices of the Old Testament and with anything that we ourselves try to do to earn our forgiveness or to feel forgiven, one of the problems is that we end up thinking, we get confused and think that we've done something that earns forgiveness. You know, I've worked hard enough. I've offered the right sacrifice. I believed the correct set of doctrines. I joined the right church. I lived the right moral code. I served in the right way. I voted for the right people. I sang the right songs. I did something. I prayed a prayer. I believed. I, I, I. If it's something I do, then I'm being rewarded with forgiveness. If God forgives us because of something we do, we have earned forgiveness. And if we've earned it, then it's not grace. But God forgives us out of mercy. Mercy means we did not deserve it. And that's what the better covenant promises us in verse 12. I will be merciful towards their iniquities. God will be merciful, not treating us the way we deserved. In Titus 3, which we've already heard this morning, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saved us according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is a better forgiveness, because there's no chance that you or I could mess it up by not saying the right thing. By doing just close but not enough. There's no chance of us failing, of us not following through. If it's mercy, if it's what God does, it is better than any other forgiveness that we have to earn. That leads us to reject all the denials of our guilt. It leads us to turn away from the things we do to distract from our guilt and to imagine that somehow we're the good people and it leads us to reject all our efforts to buy God's happiness and approval and to receive with thanks and joy the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That is a better forgiveness that we receive and that we learn to show one another. 
But with mercy and grace in view, it may seem odd to speak next of obedience. But that's what we see in this same set of verses in Hebrews, in Jeremiah, and all throughout Scripture. Another one of the better promises we see is that in the New Covenant, we learn a better obedience to God. Verse 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write my laws on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Obedience is not inconsistent with forgiveness by grace, as long as we keep them in the proper order. Listen, listen to the order that they go in, and those guys that were with us on Wednesday morning at our Wednesday morning Bible study, we talked about this this week. In Exodus 20, before giving the, the Ten Commandments, listen to how the Lord sets up the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here's my deliverance. Here's my mercy. Here's the good thing I've done for you. Now, you shall have no other God before me shall not make a graven image, shall not take my name in vain. The list of what God demands and expects of us follows after the declaration of what He has done for us. Before the giving of the law is the declaring of mercy. Deliverance first, then obedience. Similarly, in Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, with God's mercy in view, Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. With God's mercy in view, live this way. Obedience. Obedience is not the path that leads to forgiveness. Obedience is the path that leads from forgiveness. It's not, I am the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. Do this, obey your father and mother, do not murder, do not steal, and then I'm going to deliver you from Egypt and from your slavery. It's not offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and then he will be merciful to you. No. No. And so we don't go out there and tell our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors, strangers, our enemies, or one another, be a good person and God will be merciful to you. Stop doing those bad things so that the Lord will forgive you. That's not gospel. That's law. And we can't do it. The gospel is God forgives you. God is merciful. God saves you. And as he has done so, now he shows you what it looks like to be freed of your sin and from your guilt. So in looking at the better promises of the new covenant, we see the better obedience that God gives to his people rather than merely telling them what to do, giving them the law written in stone, God promises to write his law on their hearts. Which is, leads me to point out the law itself was never the problem. The law was not bad. We confessed this morning in our confession of sin from, from Psalm 19, a, a declaration of the goodness of God's law. It's perfect. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. In keeping it is great reward. The promise is not the, the problem is not the law. The fault that the Lord found in the old covenant was not the covenant itself. It's our inability to keep it. Verse 9. 
Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. God's people needed a new covenant, not because the first one was messed up or broken or failed, but because his people could not keep it. They didn't continue, though they had the law. The law has not changed. We are still called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're still called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Jesus said that not, not a, a jot or tittle, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from his law and his commands and his expectation. He still wants obedience. That hasn't changed. What's changed is your heart. Your ability to obey, as we saw and heard in our uh, assurance of pardon this morning in Ezekiel 36. First, the declaration of the merciful deliverance of God. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So first, deliverance. What follows deliverance? Obedience. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And what happens when God puts his spirit in us? What is the sign that God's spirit is in you? Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Many of you know that I'm a musician. You've never heard me play jazz, though. There's a reason for that. <laughs> But I was a music major, and there was a time where one of our instructors was trying to teach us jazz, which if you know jazz, it seems weird to talk about teaching jazz, teaching the rules of jazz. Well, here's where you change these notes, and here's where the rhythm needs to go a little bit different, and here's how that needs to go differently. It was my uncle, who was a jazz drummer, used to say, jazz is just playing all the wrong notes and then convincing people they were the right ones. <laughs> you know, it, it, like... Jazz is not something that, that you can learn by following rigid rules. And I recall as my instructor was trying to teach a group of us a jazz piece and somebody having a very hard time, wasn't me, so I felt a little bit better, but he was, you know, this person would say, I just, I don't, just tell me what to do here. And our instructor said, I can't tell you how to feel it. You, you've got to feel it and just know what to do here. Or similarly with dancing, you know, my, my PE requirement in college was ballroom dancing. It was that or archery, and nobody wanted to trust me with a bow. So I could learn the steps and minimally hurt the toes of my partner, but I couldn't and still can't feel the music and move my body with that feeling. Okay, Two examples to make the same point. Writing the law on our hearts changes it from what, it, what is the set of rules I need to follow? You know, in my marriage, in my relationship with my neighbor, in this conflict, in this situation, what are the steps I have to take and the rules I have to follow according to God's law? That's trying to play jazz by following rigidly set out rules. It doesn't work. You feel it. Okay? And what happens is when God gives us his spirit, he writes his law on our hearts. So rather than going into a conflict and saying, okay, what are the rules I have to follow in this conflict? We go into it saying, I love this person. I love this, my neighbor as myself. I want God to be honored. I want to submit myself and be humble. And, and 
as we as God's spirit works through that we follow the law and the rules end up being played out we end up keeping the rules but not because we're looking at the rules because we're looking at the spirit of God that has written his word on our hearts and so we desire what the law puts into code and shows us and so the promise of this covenant is that we have a new obedience a better obedience Philippians 2 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's written his law on your hearts. And so because God has given his children a new heart and his Holy Spirit, everything he tells us to do, we're able to do it. Do what God's law tells you to do, not because you're hardworking enough to obey the rules, but because His Spirit is in you, moving you, shaping you, changing you, writing His will and His ways on your heart. So everything He calls you to do, you can't say, well, I don't know how to do that, or I can't do that, or, I'm not able to do that. Everything God calls His children to do, He's written that law in your heart and made you able to do it. So we have a better forgiveness, we have a better obedience, and lastly, we have a better relationship with God. Verse 10, I will be their God. They shall be my people. These are words of connection, of relationship, of intimacy. But every religion and every faith that has temples and holy places, and in my travels I've seen many, they have one thing consistently true, and that's the conscious communication of distance. You cannot approach. You have to stay back. You can't go near. You have to wear this special outfit to even enter the room. And the same was true, intentionally so, under the Old Covenant. The, the, the walls, the gates, the veils, the rules, the priesthood, it was all meant to communicate distance. Even the very idea of a priest tells you you can't talk to God by yourself. You need someone else to approach God on your behalf. Not because God is hiding not because he's annoyed by you, but because he is holy. And we are not. And if we approach him in our sin, we receive judgment. In God's temple, the walls, the curtains, the priests, the rules, they reminded God's people that because of their sin, they could not be close to God. Which goes back to Eden. The Garden of Eden when that distance was enforced because Adam and Eve had sinned and they were cast out of the garden. And since then, all humanity suffers that sense of distance from God, which translates into our experience today, that sense of isolation, loneliness, even when surrounded by people. Philosophers and sociologists speak of something called alienation, that feeling of not being at home, of being an outsider, not feeling at home in your body, not feeling at home in the world. It's all partly due to the distance between us and the God who made us. If you've ever read the, the original novel Frankenstein, not the horror movie remakes, not the Hotel Transylvania comedy remakes, the original novel speaks profoundly of this because the monster that was created it was very intelligent, superiorly intelligent, if that's a word. You probably wouldn't use the word superiorly. Uh, and he was cast away by Dr. Frankenstein. He was rejected because he looked like an abomination. And that rejection ended up leading him in, uh, to a miserable life where he actually caused harm to others as well. And near the end of the novel, he, he reunites with Dr. Frankenstein and is having this conversation and he says, I ought to have been your Adam. 
I should have been that beautiful creation that you had a relationship with. I ought to be your Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel. I was benevolent and good, but misery made me a fiend. Make me happy, and I shall again be virtuous. The idea being that in separated, being separated and distanced from his maker, it, it was nothing but misery for him. He felt incomplete as long as he was at a distance from his maker. As long as sin is present, we cannot cross that distance, and we too are in misery. We need someone to go between, to carry messages to our God, and to bring his word to us. That's a priest's job. And though that enables us to maintain some sort of relationship, it's a second-hand relationship. It doesn't give us the true connection that we crave and that we need, but the new covenant through Jesus gives us a better relationship with God. Not a second-hand relationship, but in verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Okay, now does that mean that Teachers and preachers should be out of a job in the new covenant? I think in all impartiality, I can say no. Okay, it's not inappropriate for me to be up here based on you know, Ephesians or Hebrews 8.11 because there's abundant clarity in Scripture that there is an important work of the church in teaching us, teaching one another about God and about His ways. No, the word no in this verse is not a cognitive informational to know about God and to have facts about God. They shall all know me, God is saying, is to have a relationship with someone. You know, there are people who know facts about me and have listened to me speak and know things about me, and then there's my family, my kids know me. They have a relationship with me. Now, they might not know some of those facts that other people know, but they know me. So what I'm saying is that you don't need to go through me to get to God. You don't need to go through anyone else to get to God. Kids, you don't need your parents to pray to God for you. They can, and it's good, and they do, and I'm sure they do and should. But you know God. If you know Jesus, you know God. This is why, you know, and I know some people slip up and do this by accident, out of habit or tradition, but please don't call me a priest. I've heard people refer to me, oh, that's our priest. Now, I'm not a priest because I don't stand between you and God. I don't need to stand between you and God because all of them from the least to greatest shall know him. There's one mediator, 1 Timothy 2. There's only one mediator who stands between God and men, and that is Jesus Christ. Though we can always learn more about God, and it is my joy to teach you more about God, Knowing God through Jesus is all we need to be his children. So from the least to the greatest, from the Eleanors, and in the first service we baptized Asher Mullen this morning, from the youngest, the least, to the, to the oldest and wisest, from, from those with fewer skills to those with great skills, those with less experience, those with more experience, the least to the greatest, everyone can know the Lord through Jesus Christ. And the corollary of that is that when you know God, it is enough. In 2 Peter 1, which you heard in Sunday school if you were here, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, God's divine power has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us. Knowing God is all we need. In knowing Him, you have His Spirit in you, a Spirit that leads you in paths of righteousness for His name's sake, 
a spirit that gives wisdom and power. You have a better relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And you need nothing more than what that gives you. So I asked at the beginning, is the new covenant a sequel that picks up where the old one left off and continues the story? Is, is it a remake, a reboot that says, wow, that first one was messed up. Let's just start the whole thing over again and maybe we'll get it right this time. I would suggest it's neither of those. It's something else. I would suggest that the old covenant is more like, using my movie mindset, it's a trailer. And the new covenant is the feature. The trailer gives you glimpses. It gives you scenes. It gives you hints. It gives you an idea. It gives you enough to want more. It gives you enough to ask questions. I love watching trailers with my kids, but they always have questions. Well, why did that happen? What did that mean? What's going to happen? Oh, I don't know. That's the point of the trailer. It makes you hungry for what it's pointing to. And the Old Covenant did that. It gave us hints. It gave us shadows. It gave us glimpses. It gave us scenes that made us want what was yet to come. The feature which is the better promises of the new covenant. In Hebrews 7.22, we are reminded that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Whatever better exists in the new covenant exists because of Jesus. We have a better forgiveness, not because we do a better job, but because He has given His life as a sacrifice to cover our sins. We have a better obedience, not because we get better at it, but because He has given us His Spirit and a new heart. We have a better relationship because He brings God to us. Whatever good we have, whatever better promises there are, it glorifies Christ, who is the guarantor, the mediator, the priest, and the glory of the new covenant. All glory be to Christ as we'll sing in a moment. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your covenant, your promises to us of how you will act, of what we can wait on you to receive. And we thank you that you have given us hints and shadows and copies of these things until the reality came in Jesus Christ. And because of him, we have the forgiveness our souls have longed for, the obedience that we were unable to do on our own and the relationship that our hearts have craved from the beginning. We glorify Christ in these things for He is the better of the better covenant. We thank You in His name. Amen. Amen.